blockchain. Blockchain. What is value. blockchain? Who feels like blockchain? they understand blockchain? Actually, we can be human. How can they Once be Utopia can be another person. Turn off your phone, lock your door, and study this technology for a day. It's a lot of the blockchain initiatives never some things that we are trying to put blockchain everywhere. It feels really exciting to be involved in blockchain this is episode four and the final episode of White Papers on Descent, my ongoing research about blockchain as a tool for radical imagination. And I'm Barbara Cueto, curator and researcher exploring the intersection of activism, contemporary art and new technologies. In the last episode, we talked about how blockchain reframes the notion of value. And we focus on the world-building methodologies to develop social uses of blockchain. Let's continue this inquiry and return to the role of artists in this development. Now we will zoom in on gaming strategies. But first things first, why are artists interested in this process anyway? Let's hear from economic geographer Catherine Gibson again. She highlights artistic creativity as a productive asset in economic experimentation. The kind of artists that we've been involved in are doing incredible experimentation in a kind of an economic way, really. They're trying to get people together to think differently and work differently. And that creativity around economic experimentation is something that I think artists are really bringing to the project of building community economies. In a way, there's a freedom. It's an impoverished freedom. I know all the artists are living off hardly anything. But in a way, they've already put their hat in that ring of, you know, bugger it, I'm going to do this because I'm interested in it, even if it doesn't make me a living. Because they're doing that, that gives them the freedom to experiment in sorts of very unexpected ways, which I think is really helpful for social scientists and others who are sort of more stuck in the more sort of traditional research and action research kind of mode, which I think is going to be important for any building of new economies. This different way of learning is, of course, also relevant when we talk about blockchain. These distributed ledger constructions also carry social imaginaries, which are ways of looking at the world and articulating social life. That's why artist and writer Gary Sejizan finds it important to have artists in this context. My entry point to the art and blockchain thing is more that blockchain is a social imaginary which comes with a need for cultural aesthetics and social kind of imagination and steering, which I think has interestingly come in some ways from the art world. I mean, ultimately, the people involved in the cultural end of crypto or even the remotely discursive non-financial end of crypto is an unbelievably tiny group of people compared to any other meaningful cultural change. They're very good at making memes and making headlines, but it's very, very small. The first time we talked, the idea of world building in crypto was popping up in many projects. We shared this feeling of optimism at the time. I think the last time we spoke, I was a little bit more enchanted with these ideas of world making, this kind of portal making that crypto projects seem to be working on. Like there were these projects going around, such as this one I wrote about called Loot, where the scam at the time seemed to be that you just had to like, like in fine dining, you, know, you just had to like sprinkle a tiny bit of garnish that people recognize and suddenly the whole meal would appear 
for everybody. Because like in this case, the garnish was like an intimation of like a RPG game world or like a Dungeons and Dragons style thing. And you know, they trigger memories, they trigger cultural kind of communities, World of Warcraft, all these things, guild structures, cooperative economies, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly all this stuff can just appear behind the very kind of intimation of a certain kind of forms of cultural memory or baggage or whatever, if you like. So I thought that was quite exciting at the time. Like I hadn't really seen that. These ideas of gaming, enacting and performing an alternative reality become very evocative and very productive ways of thinking through blockchain. This could sound, of course, a bit far-fetched, I know, but recently I have been seeing a clear shift in digital practices moving towards these gameful strategies as critical tools for uncreative forms of experimentation. Some of you might remember the hackathon dinner and the workshop Liquid Dependencies at Fanave Museum. We heard from it in the last episode. This experience became very relevant when I continue investigating social imaginaries in blockchain. Earlier this year, I had the great opportunity of spending some time in the Singapore Art Museum, investigating gaming cultures and their connections with blockchain. There, I had the immense pleasure of meeting game expert Son Shua, who I convinced to do a mini LARP experiment based on the idea of using proof of stake as a way of rehearsing collective ownership of socially engaged artworks. Now you're going to hear Sean and I talking about prefiguration, hope, and gaming. This interaction was built after long and beautiful conversations in tropical Singapore and some freezing Zoom calls. We went over many questions that came up during my research in relation to world building and gaming. So here goes. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself so everyone could know and understand what is your work and what you're doing? So I'm an art worker. I'm a researcher and an artist based in Singapore, and I look a lot at archives. I think a lot about uncanny personhoods, and I explore the kind of participatory frameworks of play a lot in my practice as well as my research. I think like the starting point for me is like, how do you actually start thinking about games as an artistic expression? Because obviously, as we know, games are not, first of all, like, you know, it strikes you as the most artistic part so also what does the methodology provide to your work mm. to answer that i have to give a bit more context about where i come from right because i guess my practice i started very much as a kind of a performance maker from a kind of theater background and i think even when i was like working in theater i was always very interested about like subverting the relationship between the audience and the performer, right? So how do I begin to play with possibilities about how the audience is situated within the experience of the work, not just as a kind of viewer or a kind of passive consumer of the work, but they are somehow implicated within the world of the work in some way. And of course, there have been lots of people who have really discussed very rigorously, right, about theories about spectatorship. That Of course, just because you're watching a work or viewing a work doesn't mean that you are passive. Just because you are running around the space doesn't mean you are more uh, participatory or, or more, have more agency within the work. But I think those are relations that I am always curious to play with. And I think where I really started thinking very seriously about um, games was... I was working on something in 2016 uh, based on a commission by the Singapore International Festival of Arts. And this was a work called 
I am LGB. And the work itself is, it's a very complex work that's, that's very hard to explain right now. But I think that the main point about that work was that it was trying to subvert the frames of performance, right? And the setup was such that there were 100 people who would experience this four-hour durational work. And through the course of the four hours, you know, people would gradually get liberated from the experience until there's only one person left. What the work is exploring, part of it is an exploration about the archives of performance art in Singapore, exploring systems of pedagogy in Singapore. It's exploring exiles also, because we've got a very spotty history of uh, Singaporean artists, especially performance artists who have been in some way or another, exiled by the state. You maybe explain a little bit about this, because I think it's really interesting, yeah. like the position of the Singapore, because for an outsider, probably don't know. So like this connection between, which maybe is not the obvious one, like from the government to performance art. Right. Okay. So I'll try to do this a bit of justice. So um, <laughs> I think what people... Yeah. So like I said, very thick, complex history, but um, basically the gist is that what most people don't know is that the conditions of art making in Singapore is one that's always very entwined with the state, right? Because to make any kind of work, especially performance-based works, you usually have to submit it to this like state agency that kind of vets the work. And what happened in Singapore was, I think back in 1994, I would say, I think that was when this really erupted, right? And there was uh, essentially a kind of de facto ban on forum theatre as well as performance art because these are works that are... I mean, essentially, I think what made these works very controversial, these forms of works very controversial is that they don't have a script, right? And not having a script means that it becomes harder to police and, and to control, right? What gets said on stage. And so these were seen as very subversive media of art. And why I say it's a de facto ban rather than a full-out ban is because uh, technically you could still make those works. It's just that you wouldn't be able to secure arts funding to produce those works. So that's a little bit of context. Um, Sorry. So so back to how then I got into the games itself is I think yeah. while working on that piece, I was thinking about okay, what are the kind of forms adjacent to theatre and performance making in which the participants have lots of agency, right? To play, to even co-produce some of the narrative structure within the work itself. And I think that's where I started becoming more curious about games, like games offering a kind of dramaturgy of participation within a work. I like this idea of thinking of games as like forms of like theatre, but with agency. And also, of course, because of the context of Singapore, also the way of avoiding having a script and the idea of like having a script as a mode of control, no? like something that maybe from our perspective is not so clear. No? So because the concept of play always is, let's say, an outlet for entertainment, but as you said, that it also works for creative expression. It also forms like as a, let's say, an instrument for conceptual thinking or let's say an instrument that can help us to think through these social issues. And this is like really relevant for much of my study on games and like uh, with blockchain on the background. No? So for me, the potential of these like gameful strategies is very much related to the notion of time or the idea of dislocating time. 
And this potential of recreating or pre-creating or pre-enacting a scenario gives us some always this agency, as you say, over how the future would look like. So in a way, a game could prepare us for hardships to come or a moment of like decision that we have to like is a rehearsal. No? So in a way, like we could pre-think or ponder about our own opinions and think much more clearly what could be the long-term repercussions. No? So that's why I think like games are a great way to facilitate this somehow different texture of embodied time. Because we talked before about this idea of prefiguration. So I'm really interested to hear from you. How do you use it in your practice? Yeah, wow. Okay, there's so much to unpack there, right? I think uh, one of the things, as always, it's like 20 gems and insights happening at the same time. I think, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think one of the things that, that play is interesting for me is its potential to reformulate narratives, right? Because I think oftentimes in theatre, we're used to this model of a narrative structure being linear, being fixed, being almost something that is dictated to you, right? Whereas in game structures, especially because we can't predict how you play or how you interact with the world of the narrative fiction, the kind of possibilities of reformulating it and reinterpreting it and intervening into that narrative in, in fascinating ways. Of course, these are not categorical distinctions, right? Like uh, if you look at performance studies, people like Richard Schechner have always like drawn the kind of spectrum from theatre, right? Rituals to theatre, right? And rituals being these spaces of transformation, sometimes transformation of narratives as well. So I think when we talk about the kind of prefigurative possibilities of playing, I'm thinking, you know, coming back to something like forum theatre, which is a, a form in which it's a, almost like a kind of technology in which the audience or in the kind of context of forum theatre, they're called spect actors, right? And they um, have the opportunity to effectively rehearse strategies of engaging with oppression by playing with the kind of the narrative of the anti-play, intervening into it and rewriting, literally rewriting the narrative, right? Into a strategy that is perhaps one that is less oppressive and even emancipatory for its people. So I think that's already like one concrete strategy, right? In which we see how the space of play allows for these kinds of very embodied forms of rehearsing strategies. And I think that embodiment is, is something that I find uh, very powerful because oftentimes when we think about these issues and talk about them in very abstract ways, oftentimes when we are actually confronted with the situation itself, it's not so intuitive to metabolize that insight into a very situational moment, right? Or a scenario in which you are directly participating into the kind of scene that's unfolding in your everyday life. So I think that's one immediate thing that comes to mind there. So this idea of like reformulating narratives or bending narratives, I think this is super interesting. And these like forms of gaining agency over then the narrative and like be empowered by it. No, So of course you use different methodologies, but particularly you use LARP, which I think is very, very, very useful to think through big problems, no? like um, as a serious game. I also have been noticing lately, this has been like a shift, no? So like before it was like a, a very niche way of practicing. And now it's like moving more towards contemporary art. It's used as a prototyping session for digital technologies. So we've been seeing it like, no, in the projects that I've been doing before, also as a way of thinking through blockchain. So why do you think this is the moment of using this methodology? Or why do you think it's giving us in this particular point in time? 
I think one immediate response is that with live action role playing, what it allows is that it immediately allows a whole multiplicity of stories to play out. Right? All these kinds of mini arcs that are happening across like a whole diversity of players. It allows emergent dynamics to, to happen. You know, like all these things that exceed the parameters of the designer behind the story, right? And when we then apply this technology or, or we apply this tool of LARPs to concepts that somehow feel very abstract or very, very complex, right? Anything that, that, that involves complex systems when you have multiple actors coming in to kind of play it out in their everyday lives. Like you you see how firstly ideas like that seem so abstract like blockchain, how they make sense of it, right? Through the context of whether it's care, whether it's a kind of distended sense of time across decades, whether it is in a kind of speculative scenario or whether it's in, ter- in, the, in the context of a kind of climate crisis, right? I think labs really allow people to also access the affective register of some of these topics, right? And they see what it means for us to, to really process these ideas on a very human level especially when you're when you're interacting with a very diverse group of people that may not have the same kinds of mental models in which you might have uh, towards the topic then the space of the lab really kind of surfaces and and challenges and enforces you to confront some of those blind spots that you might have or that you may not necessarily have anticipated would be an issue at all and then that might like surface in an interesting way during the lab itself and i think one Thing that's very fascinating my experience of having worked on labs as well as uh, participated in labs is that you know you, you always think that you have a clear sense of what your character is or you, you think you, you already know what this persona might be within the situation but you really only get to know this person through the way in which other characters begin to interact with you and that's where you see all these very multifaceted dimensions and in terms of you know aspects of how you would respond to this situation that gives you a lot more insight about who you really are as well. <laughs> I love this idea of like you get to know yourself through the process of playing someone else because you are confronted, right, with these other dynamics, these other personalities. And something that is going to stay with me is because a LARP exceeds the parameters of the designer. I think that's precisely the moment of the, the creative potential of it, no? because it's like it's the unexpected. And like the way that it taps into this affective layer, both into the, of course, the participants, but also for the one who created it, because then you feel much more, you get this idea of like the embodied knowledges that we talked about, no? like these ways of perceiving is like a bodily experience. So we mentioned something, and I really don't want to miss this because uh, we talked about this last time. You mentioned this thing of the courage to prefigure. And this has resonated with me so much because, as we said, no, it's like this really, really goes into the affective layer of your own persona and how you behave with it. And precisely this moment where all the future seems so dark and it's almost so difficult to move away from this lock. If we think of this naive way of like thinking about the future in a different way, it feels almost like you are being not realistic. No? But precisely this experience of gaming transform and gives you that possibility of a triggering the imagining otherwise. Well, you, do you think we need these practices more today than before? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I think the last time I shared with you, it was really from this space of of what what is the place of hope in our times, right? Like to even like utter that word feels almost like is there a space to talk about hope sincerely in an age like this? I think one of the ins- most inspiring thinkers for me is the queer theorist Jose Munoz in his text Cruising Utopia, right, where he thinks about queerness and he talks about how the present is a kind of prison house, right? And we need to insist on thinking on this, on a kind of there and then, a kind of possibility of the future that is beyond the prison house of the present. Because I think oftentimes when we are stuck in the present, it is so easy to be seduced and to to think that there's no possibility otherwise or, or that the conditions of the present is natural or naturalized. And so Jose Munoz's call to think or to insist on the kind of then and there, the possibility of this horizon that exceeds the present was a very powerful one for me. And I think that's precisely the space where it begins to intersect with, you know, your earlier question about labs, right? Because when we create these kinds of worlds through our kind of LARPing experiences, we give ourselves the permission to step out of the prison house of the present. We give ourselves permission to step out of that and to consider and imagine and enact a very different possibility of how the world could be. And I think that's where then like LARP begins to lend this, a very literal world-building capacity because we are no longer just operating on the preconditions of the present. We are playing this game in which we are collaboratively already building a different possibility through how we are relating to each other, right? So it's almost like a kind of microcosm of this um, other possibility for the world. I mean, sometimes I'm a bit ambivalent about the rhetorics of futures, right, of futurism, because there's also a tendency for this kind of politics of deferral, right? That, that, you know, yes, we can talk about this kind of utopian futures, right, that are inaccessible to us in the present, or that sometimes there's certain kinds of imaginations of the future that specifically sacrifices, you know, certain kinds of people within the present, right, in order to achieve this kind of mythical future that is somehow utopian. Whereas, through the law, by embodying it in the present, we are kind of insisting on, hey, that seemingly utopian future, that's not something that's inaccessible to us, but we are already rehearsing and incubating, through the law, we are incubating that capacity and that capability to enact those futures right now. I think one of the kind of contexts of hope that has been quite inspiring for me is the whole conversation around hope punk. So when I talk about hope, I'm not talking about a kind of naive utopianism or escapist utopianism or even a kind of naive optimism about the future. But I think the idea of hope punk is precisely to acknowledge that Yes, you know, the present is bleak for many of us, you know, in a time where you have these kinds of intersecting disasters of the present, it feels impossible to imagine any kind of future otherwise. So the punk part of hope punk is precisely that call, right? That in spite of these crises, right, we we insist on hope. We insist on the sincerity and, and, and the kind of radical optimism in terms of my own practice and art making as well, I, I see that as a kind of ethical responsibility personally because 
you know, I I think it's almost too easy to fall into the trope of dystopias, and and I'm like, okay, do we really need another dystopian fiction at this point when that's basically our reality right now, right? So I think that's where. I try to, with my collaborators as well, this is a conversation that, that we often have, right? Not to deny the things that are happening in the present, but in spite of that, how do we still insist on the possibility of hope? I love this idea, in spite of that. No? We need this mind frame, we need to overcome to think of that. Like, for me, this this hope, I call it anxious hope for me, you know, it's like related to the block principle of like the not yet, this powerful idea that the, whatever happens in the future. But of course, that doesn't fit really in our own life, as you mentioned, it's like this stack of disasters, of crises around us. This is almost like a state of mind in our generation. So I like this idea of more like Heidegger take on anxiety that like responds to this potential of enlightenment as is, uh, since it is the very first time of like the very experience of freedom no and a way of like manifesting and conceiving and reconceiving the world in many ways so by reconsidering the present anxiety which is the first symptom of emancipation we are able also to reshape the feeling and trigger a way of constructing an alternative future so that's why i call it this is anxious hope of course your hope punk is like much much more cooler than my <laughs> more traditional <laughs> anxious hope but Oh, no, no, but, but that's, that, there's a shared ethos, right? I, I think it's about, like, retooling, reshaping that anxiety towards, yeah, how, what's the kind of alchemy that can, again, not to deny or negate it, but to still insist on the imminence of hope, right? That hope isn't something that is transcendental, that is out there, inaccessible, but perhaps it is already here, although it takes a different kind of form, right? And so maybe if we begin to to sit or attend to some of those anxieties as well, can we also unpack what are the kind of hopes that are entangled with those anxieties? I mean, like now bear with me, please, on the, on the blockchain, anxious hope. <laughs> no, because we see that, as you said, we have already so many dystopias and I have the feeling that like blockchain is like rapidly moving towards that, no? like to creating this hyper-financialized solution. Of course, that's not with the ethos that it was born. And of course, from NFTs to the many other products that are only exacerbating this hyper-capitalist uh, machinery, I still think the blockchain holds the like the possibility of enlightenment at that possibility not that sounds really cheesy but maybe it holds the, to me this like is born out of the same anxious hope and this hope punk these uh, alternative configurations so maybe i was thinking as a way of wrapping this up that you could talk about a hopeful solution for blockchain but based a little bit on the larp that we did together at the singapore art museum mention how you did it because I think mm. it was beautiful. Oh, that's really kind. So with that little intervention at the Singapore Art Museum, I think that was also building off a kind of performance lecture by another Singaporean artist by the name of Cixie, who had a work called Dear Singapore Art Museum Acquisition Committee, which was essentially a kind of institutional critique about, you know, why is it that museums don't know how to handle performance-based medium or socially engaged art? So within the lab that we did, we wanted to sustain that conversation, right? And so within that kind of fictional world, speculative world, a few years from the present, in the near future, museums have, you know, being so inspired by how NFTs 
offered a, a possible solution to capturing at least media art uh, or authenticating media art, then it decided to use blockchain to think about participatory art or socially engaged art. And we were playing a lot with the idea of, you know, proof of work and proof of stake. And of course, that's a wordplay as well, because oftentimes, you know, the question of, okay, I'm doing this like performance artwork that has like three to five people present, right? And what does that mean? How does it become collected? How does it become documented? Where does it reside? And oftentimes, there's this question of, what's the proof of work of a medium that is uh, inherent ephemeral and then what does it mean to then shift the conversation towards something like proof of stake what does it mean to again wordplay about stake what does it mean to think about who are the stakeholders of the work and I think it, it stemmed from this reflection about how oftentimes with participatory art this is a, a kind of form of art where uh, oftentimes the audience or participant is not just consuming the art but they are also in many ways co-producing or co-authoring some of the works again, again, in ways that potentially exceed the authorship or design of the artists who first uh, conceived of the work themselves. So what do we then document, right? Is it just a kind of video documentation of the work itself? Or is it that, you know, each person who has experienced the work, who somehow in, in some ways complete the work in, in this di- whole diversity of ways, do that also become part of the work itself? Where do we begin to locate the work or is the work precisely the nexus of social relations, right, that it is enacting upon. So if we start shifting that language from collection as if the work was this object, this one object that you could collect, what does it mean to then demonstrate this network of stakeholders, whether it is the initial artist or the institution or the curators or the participants or even the viewers of documentation of the work, right? What does it mean to think about all of these people, this entire network of people as being part of the stakeholders of the work? Um, So Within the lab itself, we began to experiment. Uh, What if everyone had a kind of stake in the work itself? How would that become then the tool to govern the kind of authentication of the work? When I say authentication, I was thinking about how these works are not just things to be collected in a kind of repository, right? But um, these are works that are meant to be, as live works, they to, to present them, they are therefore either reenacted or reactivated in whatever ways, right? So is there a space to think about this infrastructure of blockchain to consider on one hand the kind of decentralization of performance archives uh, and the reconfiguration of how we think about uh, performance archives uh, not simply as a kind of institutional memory or even a kind of stable object but one that is rejuvenated by this network of stakeholders, right? That also perhaps based on the kind of social contract that's established in this group allows for some space of dynamic change to happen within the work while still kind of sustaining that genealogy of authenticity. So these were some of the kind of ambitions or initial provocations with which we were trying to bring towards thinking about how blockchain might open up, you know, uh, while seemingly absurd, it might also push towards a way of thinking about performance archives, the repertoire of memories that are shared amongst the stakeholders, and how 
we value ephemeral works within the context of an institution. This is amazing. I enjoyed so much that uh, LARP not only was really fun to participate on it, it also brought this very critical point. So like, what is the role of the museum at the same time? No, like, especially in this very participatory artworks, especially the Singapore Art Museum, really wanted to position itself as, as an institution that is fostering communities and such. Then you're like established this question and the challenge becomes of course, much more obvious, but also the tremendous repercussions that I have also in the art making. No, I think we're going to leave it here. Hopefully we'll hear from you from a little LARP later on. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and now get yourself comfortable and let's enter Sonshua's LARPing experiment. Remember this? No, that's not it. That's a synthetic memory. You weren't even around for that work. Look closer. You would never make that kind of gesture. That's not really you. That video is just another one of those deep fakes. You can't trust these so-called documentations anymore, or people's memory for that matter. So much of what we see these days has been retrospectively edited, filtered or deep faked to the point that no one is really sure anymore whether something really happened or not. Just last week, there was another deep faked video of Ai Weiwei piecing together the smashed fragments of Han Dynasty urns like some kind of perverse corrective to his previous work in 1995 where he was dropping those urns. After this supposed archival footage surfaced and became viral, people actually started coming forward with accounts remembering this piece of performance art. Some art historians were even speculating that this synthetic media was engineered by Chinese nationalists trying to rehabilitate and harmonise the narrative around Ai Weiwei. It's just so uncanny how quickly the tide turned. A few years ago, artists and activists were experimenting with deepfake technologies as a reparative tool, rewriting historical narratives to provoke conversation about historical injustices. And, irony of ironies, these technologies are now co-opted by nation-states and corporations and media celebrities anxious to recast the past for fear of being cancelled. Everyone's deepfaking the past... It's your due diligence to carefully curate your history. And then you post them as viral memes so that it starts to circulate as the canonical truth in people's mind. Because that's the economy of truth these days. It really is a virus, this epidemic of disinformation. And the symptom we're all suffering now is this decay of truth itself. Which brings us back to why we're here today. As part of the Singapore Museum of Art Acquisition Committee for Social and Participatory Art, we're pioneering this new system of accounting and authenticating the history of this ephemeral art form. And to do this, I'll need you to try again. Remember, you said this was one of the most transformative works of art you'd participated in. Ah... There it is. How about you walk me through your experience of the work? How did you first encounter it? Mm, I see. Okay, so what drew you to participate in the work? 
<laughs> and um, what were you expecting when you arrived? Mm. Mm. What were you feeling when you were in that room? Ah. Which part of the experience was most surprising for you? I see. And why did you decide to show that? How would you say you were changed? Take your time. It's important that you respond to this in the way that is most authentic to you. Trust your body. It holds the repertoire of your experience. And that's what we're hoping to authenticate. The repertoire of experiences generated by the work. With social and participatory art, the work is often not just its material remains, but all those immaterial dimensions and social relationships surrounding the work. One might even say that the nexus of relationships is the work itself. So how do you collect that? How do you collect something that continues to live inside and between you? Well, you don't. You were one of the few people who got to experience the work. One might even argue that you were a co-author, a co-producer through your participation in the work. What we're trying to establish isn't proof of the work itself, but proof of your stake in the work. The Acquisition Committee is gathering the community of experiences surrounding the work in order to authenticate it on this blockchain-based repertoire. By using a proof-of-stake mechanism to achieve distributed consensus, we are able to truly verify this work and decentralize the governance of its future reactivations. This is the future of acquisition. It's no longer just about collection. It's just as important to us to sustain the ethos of the work and to protect it from bad actors who might appropriate and violate the work or censor it. You know about our country's checkered past with such art forms. With your participation, this work continues to live on the blockchain as much as it does in you and the expanding community of people who will have a stake in its future. This way, you will be protecting its legacy by becoming part of this repertoire, authenticated and truthfully remembering. The White Papers on Descent podcast is produced and narrated by me, Barbara Cueto, with audio production and sound design by Lucia Escazzocchio from Social Broadcast. Thank you all the people who have made this podcast possible. This episode was supported by the Singapore Art Museum and Creative Industries Funds in the Netherlands.